if you're going to a breeder and they have a certain price, you're paying for all the work that they have put into the animal, the years of work that they've put into the animal. You're paying for the support that that breeder is going to give you. The blood python community is unbelievably supportive. And if you go to um, a, you know, a known breeder, someone, a quality breeder, they're going to help you when you have issues. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to From the Ground Up podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here. So... Uh, portcitypythons.com check out portcitypythons.com for any merch and of course i left the youtube video running so you can hear it and uh, other than that we have merch up there as well as isopods and corn snake breeding season is happening right now so i am pairing up a bunch of corn snakes as well as some eastern black king snakes as well as a louisiana pine snakes have locked up so that's kind of this breeding season in a nutshell. And uh, yeah, so that's what I'm working on right now. Uh, Got to feed up a bunch of adults and pair them. So yeah, that's pretty much the state of the union. Other than that, I don't really have much else to tell you. But today's guest is a good friend of mine. I had first, we first hung out. I think I first met her at Tinley Park or one of the carpet fests or something like that. And then uh, we ended up um southeast carpet fest we hung out for quite a while and then as well as oh and we actually stayed in the same place in florida and then uh louisiana just a few weeks later we actually uh did the show together there as well so i feel like i've seen you a lot april justine welcome to the show hey how are you thank you for having me of course sorry i just rambled on about like (laughs) how much i've seen you the last month i don't know why I mean, really, it's been the past, what, six months, I feel like, is how we've had a lot of interactions lately, so. Yeah, and it's that. weird. You're in you're in Memphis, right? Yep, Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, so you're in Memphis, I'm in PA, and James and Katie are in Louisiana, but <laughs> we have managed to see each other a whole bunch in the last couple of months. A whole heck of a lot, <laughs> yeah. And I think, actually, we were at the, the Carpet Fest, maybe... I want maybe two years ago. Were you at that one? Yeah. So I think we were at the same place. But I didn't meet you. I don't think like I kind of knew of you, but I didn't actually meet you at that time. <laughs> and I know that you were one of the one of the people who hung around with like the carpet guys after Tinley at the bar. So I think yeah. I met you. I met you before that way, but never like actually sat down and talked. Right, so I, there's so many like, people. Like that, yeah, yeah. You, you know the person, and you're like, oh, I should introduce myself, but then I don't, <laughs> and, and then that's how that goes. Yeah, and if it's meant to be that that you end up seeing them, it's the snake world. You're gonna see everyone again, so that's why it's like, yep. Eventually, it's like, yeah, I knew of you forever, but now, like, I legit know you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how was uh, how was going down? I know that you toured a facility when you were down at Southeast Carpet Fest. Yeah, so that was, was the really whole experience. Um, it was a really eye-opening experience for me. Um, for people that know my history, um, I've been seriously into reptiles for the past six years. I've been keeping for the past like 19. Um, started with corn snakes and wanted every color and every pattern combination I could get my hands on at the time. 
Uh, I had a boa, moved on to ball pythons. That's really where I kind of started. Realized I didn't like ball pythons as much as I thought I did. Uh, I randomly got a Brazilian rainbow boa and a blood python came along with that purchase. And I said, ah, sure, why not? Might as well. And that snake is where my whole blood python uh, passion started. Um, but with that, at the, three years ago, after I really started building up my blood python collection, um, a virus came into my collection. And I don't know if it was NIDO or what exactly it was, because at the time I didn't know enough to get it tested. But it wiped out a good third of my collection. And it was only the blood pythons that it wiped out or the, the short tails as well. Um, and so when we went to Florida and they talked so much about the NIDO virus and talking about how to mitigate it, what it is, how, how, you know, how much of it is around and all the different strains that we have, um, that was really interesting to me. And, uh, I hung out with Steve Tillis a lot and he is one of the people doing, he's getting, he's, uh, working on getting his doctorate and his research that he's doing is on the NIDO virus. So talking to him, seeing his collection, seeing how he mitigates the contamination, uh, was really opening, And I used a lot of the stuff that I learned there and, uh, brought that into my collection here. So I have like one of those hand sanitizer things on my wall and I, between cleaning snakes, I'll hand sanitize my hands. I got it before COVID-19, so I didn't have uh, any problems getting that sanitizer. Um, I now use a, a bleach compound, a compound mixture. So it's like a 10% bleach mixture that I use. Um, any snake that has ever had a respiratory infection whatsoever, um, I have labeled, so you see like all the labels behind me, um, the blue ones that you see over there are animals that have respiratory symptoms. So that means any time in all my keeping lifetime that I've had of this snake, if it has ever come, had, you know, extra snotty or had, you know, the sound with the respiratory infection going on, I just considering it that it might have NIDO. And so I clean that one last, that one gets, you know, their own pair of gloves, they get everything gets bleached out, you know, so I make sure I take those extra precautions with those specific snakes. Um, and I learned all that on the Florida trip when I went there. So that was, you know, for me, one of the best things that I could have learned at that time. So it was perfect timing for all that as well. So, yeah. So what's kind of the biggest things other than just, uh, marking the tubs and stuff like that? Like what are something that everyone can do in between to kind of get biosecurity started? So for sure, I would get um, the hand sanitizer. I would for sure do that. And then also start working with either bleach or with alcohol. Um, with the bleach, you do need like a 10 minute contact time for it actually to kill everything. And there's this is like based off of a scientific paper. So I'm not just pulling these numbers out of my butt. <laughs> uh, with the, the alcohol, it's 70 to 90% uh, isopropyl alcohol. And uh, I coming from uh, my background, my career background is pharmaceuticals. So I know with alcohol, you need a one minute contact time for that. Uh, but that will kill the virus as well as uh, the bleach. And so if you use that, plus, you know, make sure you have gloves and use one pair of glove per snake. So if you have a whole rack that none of them have symptoms, go ahead and use, you know, the same gloves, the same tools for, for that single rack. But if any animal has symptoms, you have, you know, one set of forceps and cleaners that are for healthy animals. And you have another set that are for animals that could possibly be asymptomatic to this virus. So, so that's three things you can do. I mean, you can probably split that up into more than three, but three big things that you can do right off the bat. 
And does that one minute contact time, does that mean that when you spray it, you need to wait a minute before you wipe it away or? Yes. Yes. With alcohol, um, it actually kills things when it evaporates. And so you want to saturate all of it. And then as it evaporates, then it kills it. And then the manual wiping down is what takes out any of the leftover residue that might be left behind. Gotcha. So what really, as far as what were the steps to get that out of your collection? Uh, it really sucked. It came down to, uh, so I had, I want to say about six to 10 snakes at the time uh, that had symptoms of it. And two of them that uh, came into the collection. And I think this is where it got introduced to my collection. Uh, they had just kind of a stuffy nose but it wasn't anything where they were like massively blowing bubbles or had, you know, gaping mouth or anything like that. They just sounded every once in a while snotty and I can hear them, you know, kind of do that sneeze kind of thing, like clearing their nostrils every once in a while. Um, and so I had those and I was just keeping them to see how they do. Cause I know you being a reptile person, you kind of just wait and see if they get better for a while. So I was doing that. Um, but I came home and one of my T negative ivories I found passed away when I came home. And he was one of my favorite snakes. He was probably the coolest pattern of an ivory. It was interesting pattern, interesting color, and he had a nice temperament. So not only was he a high-end snake, but he had a good temperament for a blood python, and he was passed away. And that was like my breaking point. And I'm like, okay, I cannot have this spread to any more animals. What the heck am I going to do? So I ended up uh, euthanizing every single animal in my collection at that time that had any symptom of a respiratory infection and cleared it all out that way. Um, it's a, a really crappy decision to have to make. Um, but if you are fighting a virus or something that is spreading like that, that really is the only way to really nip it in the butt and kind of start from scratch. Um, and then once I did that, I basically, my collection was on lockdown for about a year and a half. I kind of went down down low for a little bit. You didn't hear too much about me um, just because I wanted to make sure that everything was okay. Um, and I haven't had any, any deaths or any bad respiratory infections, uh, especially coming to uh, Memphis. The snakes really like the temperatures here. They seem to really like the extra humidity here. So everything is very level. Um, but then when I went to Carpet Fest and Steve Tillis was like, you know, if they've had any symptom at all, in the past that that could be Nido. It might not be, but it could be. Um, and then a the thing with testing them, people have asked me before, well, why haven't you tested your animals? Well, if they're not under stress, the virus might, might not be out in their symptoms or in their, in their body. So if you go and test it, you might not even get any of the virus and you get a false negative. So I would get like a false sense of security that my animals are okay when, when really they might not be. They're just not stressed enough to be shedding the virus at this time. Right. And sorry, I'm going to need to steer it into happier subjects. <laughs> um, it's, it's a good topic to talk about because I, I think yeah. a lot of people, when they go through something like that in their collection, you know, I'm sure people have blacklisted me and not want to buy from me. Because I think, of and that. I think many of us have gone through a very similar Exactly, situation. exactly. So I kind of want to show people what I did to get a hold of it, what I'm doing now. Um, you know, there's Scattershot Exotics was one that was very, very transparent. Um, and he's, you know, on his way and doing okay. So, you know, it happens and it's going to something, it, once you get to a certain point in collecting and breeding, you know, big things are going to happen to your collection. And if we don't talk about it, people 
they're going to think that, you know, maybe they personally did something wrong or it was their fault. And it really probably isn't. So I think the more we talk about it and the more we share ideas, you know, the better for the whole community and taking care of our animals. Yeah. I think if any, if there's any idea as far as uh, if viruses can spread between colonies of animals or people or something like that and affect everyone, I don't think there's any, uh, there's any denying it at this point. Exactly. As yeah, we're exactly. here for the last month. <laughs> exactly. Especially in this time period for the, for, uh, for the United States and the world. So absolutely. Yeah. So obviously your collection pretty much, you had to start over and how exactly did you go about, I mean, did you have some type of game plan going in or how'd you settle on what you were going to start your collection with? Well, I've always focused on the T negative blood pythons. Um, So basically my goal was to, you know, work the T negative blood python and make that the do selectively breeding so that way it'll have the best color saturation. And, you know, a lot of people, anyone that's worked with uh, albino, you can throw a T negative albino in any species and the animal is going to look great. Whether or not that that base normal that you threw it to was a really, you know, high contrast, good quality normal, they're still going to turn out great as the albino. So my goal is to really have, you know, those really beautiful red crisp pattern, you know, normals and then pair that with the T negative to try to amplify that color and really, you know, make that just a higher quality animal in the future. So I've always had that in the back of my head. I knew that's my main purpose. That's my main thing. Of course, I work with the dark Sumatrans, some orange heads as well. So I kind of just saw what I had and and what I was interested in. It it gave me the ability to kind of focus down again and and regroup my thoughts and, and where I wanted to go. So uh, I just kind of went from there and, and started building. So you'll, if you were to tour my, uh, my snake room, you'll see a lot of animals that I bought in uh, 2017 and 2018, because that's when I knew things were okay and things were doing, doing well. Uh, so you'll see that. So I have a lot of younger snakes right now um, that probably in the next year or two will start to, to peak and I can actually breed them because I was rebuilding at that point. Yeah, so you've been, and we were talking about before, uh, before we went live, it's been, you know, I think a little bit over six years or so. Mm-hmm. And when was your first clutch? Uh, was it before or after that time? Uh, so my first clutch was corn snakes, and that was back in 2014. Um, and that was before they had the virus come through. And then my second clutch uh, my blood python clutch, my first one was in 2017, and that was right on the borderline of the snakes having the the virus or whatever went through my collection. So um, with those animals, I've actually noticed too, and when I talked to, to Steve Tillis, uh, the, the babies, for one, when a, a, if a sick adult were to lay the eggs, that virus does not go on the eggs and you can keep the eggs separate. And uh, unless you do cross-contamination or something like that, um, it's a low chance that they're going to get that virus because the mom like rubbed it on the eggs or anything like that. So you're not going to have that. Uh, and also the youngsters. So like two years and younger, they tend not to, maybe their immune system stronger. I'm not really sure exactly, but, uh, even with respiratory infections, you tend to find that in the adult blood pythons more than the younger ones. Uh, so I wasn't too worried about that, uh, but still kept that in mind. Like my babies are, they're all in the same room. So they're breathing the same air. So, and there's only so much I can do with that, but I do do my babies on one day or my yearlings and younger on one cleaning day, don't touch anything else. And then the next day is when I'll do the rest of them. And after I 
the very end is when I do all the sick ones. So I, that's kind of the, the pattern that I use to, to make sure that I have no issues. So that was a long answer to a short question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's totally fine. And when, when you were picking these like T negatives and normals, I mean, babies obviously start off different from when yeah. they grow up. So it's kind of, what are you looking for as a baby? And then what does that transform? What does the T neg do to those same colors? Like exactly what does the red turn into? So uh, you have with blood pythons, you can have brownish blood pythons all the way to like the super, super red. Um, even sometimes they look like a purpley red in color. And the T negative is just going to make that the red, yellow, and white. So it's going to, with T negative, you're taking out all of the black. Uh, T positive, you're taking out some of the black pigment, but not all of it. So if you see those caramels and browns and maybe even purples coming through, you're working with T positive. If you see the whites and the yellows and oranges, you're going to be working with T negative. Um, so I haven't done enough of breeding and producing to know exactly what the T negative is going to do in uh, relation to the quality of the normal that I'm bringing in. So that's something where in the next couple years is what I'm really going to start seeing. Um, I already know my matrix from 2017. I used uh, Jack the Ripper, who is my, like, he looks like Ronald McDonald with his colors <laughs> for the T negative. So uh, with him, those babies came out with a beautiful sunset kind of coloring. We had some really pretty sherbet oranges in there because um, the matrix kind of cuts down on that red color. So um, they came out much more crisp than other ones I've seen in the past. So I can see that I'm on the right trail and that I am bringing up those colors. But like I said, I'm not going to know for sure exactly how that's going to work out. Um, and so much work has been done with the T positive. You know, we have like 20 years of braiding that have been done with T positive. So you will see these stellar, amazing saturated T positive. But we're really just starting with T negatives on the blood python world. So you know, the possibilities are really endless right now. So it's really exciting to be in those projects right now. Yeah. And what, what negative over anything else, any other project you get into as well as obviously T positive? Well, when I started, I had T positives. Um, they were actually some that succumbed to the virus. And so I kind of was forced into, you know, selecting those out of my collection. Um, and then it really came to the fact that I, I love Jack. He's my first one that I had. And then I got my, my pair of ivories as well that were visual T negative. And I just love the look, you know, and, and I, I just, the more I saw the T positive, yes, I absolutely appreciate T positives. And I think they're beautiful, beautiful animals. But if I'm going to put money into my collection, I want it to go into the projects that I'm most passionate about. And so I just decided to just not have T positives whatsoever and only work on the T negative because, you know, that's truly where I guess the attraction that I have to the blood python morphs is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's Jack right there, right? That is him. Doesn't he look like Ronald McDonald colors? <laughs> like for yeah. real. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. And I love how randomly white comes in mm -hmm. the, uh, I guess you'd call these alien heads in a ball python. I'm not sure if it's the same thing on a blood. I call them saddles, but you know, alien heads, they're the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the technical term is alien heads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he's kind of like the core of my collection, really. And I just kind of base my projects mostly after him. Uh, I'm growing up one of his babies. And I also want to start bringing in, they have different lines of T-positive. I mean, T-negative. So they have um, the lavender T-negative, which uh, I actually haven't seen adults. But as the babies, they do have more of a kind of 
the white has kind of a purple tinge to it. Uh, Matt Turner has been working with those. And then um, Tracy Barker has red-eyed T negative, and that's actually a codom and has a super or incomplete dominant, uh, whichever term you want to use at this time. Uh, but it, And it does have solid red eyes. So with the strain of T negative that I have, half of the eye is solid red, and then the other half is kind of like a white speckly orange color. But with the red eyes, it's a solid red eye. And then the super version of that is extremely saturated uh, with the red coloring on its body, even as a baby. So I've only seen baby pictures of that. And I just can't even imagine. Like, it's going to blow my mind once that gets the adult coloring because it looks crazy as a baby. And with blood pythons, they don't get their true coloring till about three or four years old. So it's just going to get better and better until then. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah. And are you so in a perfect T neg? I mean, what's the ideal scenario? You're going to want the highest red color. And for me, this is like my personal opinion, I guess. Um, you want the highest red color and the, the best contrast. So that's what I look for when I'm looking for animals uh, is the crispness of the pattern and that the colors don't really bleed into each other. And is there any, uh, or do they know the the origin of this? Was this something that was imported, or when did people start producing a T negatives? I believe it was imported, uh, and Cryptic was working on them in Florida and with their farm, and they got most of them out. Now, with the red-eyed that came in and the lavender, I do not know the history on those at all, um, but I can probably talk to Tracy Barker and get that history if I needed it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that's amazing, right? Having really one of the actually, I think it's there's two pivotal uh, like blood python breeders that are females that are like, yep, you know, pillars of the community, right? Yeah, which I think is great because this industry is so male dominant. So to have some females that are really doing amazing work and and more and more are popping up. So it's it's really exciting to see that that females are really getting a lot of stuff done, too. Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, as far as I don't, I know there's a whole bunch of females in corn snakes, but um, it doesn't, it seems like blood pythons is like a very masculine, it's a big fat snake going to bite you <laughs> everywhere. Is there something about like the reputation of it that, that draws you to them? Um, I always say that I like blood pythons the most because they're like me. They're chubby, they're sassy, but when you get to know them and they build trust, you have the trust for life. <laughs> so that's what I always say. So are you in the camp that, I mean, you can kind of like traumatize your animals in a way? Uh, like, what do you mean? Meaning it seems like you do a certain amount of like trusting their instincts and their space and stuff like that for you not to have negative experiences and vice versa. Oh, yeah. So people ask a lot of times, like, how do you tame a blood python? And some people will say, go into the room, you know, every day at the same time, have the same pattern. You want to end the, the exchange on a positive note. So you don't want them striking like crazy at you. You want them to chill out for a little bit and then you can put them back in. Uh, I don't do that. <laughs> so I end up going through the, the thought, you know, just leave them alone. And so I will take them out for cleaning and put them back in. And that's really it. And I'll, you know, pop open their tub because most of my blood pythons, actually all my blood pythons are in tubs right now. So I'll open up their tub and look at them. But, you know, I'm not going to, you, you can see they start breathing really heavy and they do different kind of tongue flicks and their eyes kind of move in a, a, a more 
crisp kind of way, like a fast kind of movement. And that's when you can tell that they're not comfortable. And so if a snake is showing me that they're not comfortable and they're upset, I'm not going to try to get them out and force them to, you know, like you will like me, like that's not really going to happen. So I just leave them be. And, and sometimes it takes, you know, up to three years for them to be okay. And sometimes I have a couple that still are not okay. And it's been about five years and they still give me more sass than I want them to. <laughs> and so when you're, when you're growing these things up, I mean, is it like most other snakes to where they're a little bit more feisty as babies and then will calm down with age? You know what? Generally speaking, yes, they are more feisty, uh, but they really go on more of an individual basis. Um, all the T negative 007s that I hatched were unbelievably docile and still ate with no problems. And then I had basically any blood python that has batik in it is a absolute shithead to me and is just crazy, but will also eat and do fine. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of like carpet pythons are all, not all of them, but, you know, most of them are bitey babies and then they grow out of it. Uh, you're going to have some that are bitey babies and they grow out of it. You're going to have some that are calm and, and always are calm unless, you know, something terrible happens to them. Then they might be traumatized. Uh, but then you have those snakes that are just complete assholes and they're just going to stay complete assholes. So, you know, it's they have a bad reputation, but we've been doing so much breeding with them that I really think they're mostly along the lines of any other species out there. Gotcha. And how many, um, how many different genes and stuff are you working with other than obviously T negative? Um, I have some matrix. I have batik. I have a golden eye right now. I have some stripe that I'm working with. Um, I think that's all that I really have in my collection right now. And then a combination of those. Uh, so some I have that are visual, some, you know, the ivory is a super form of the matrix. Um, but that's basically the genes I'm working with right now. Uh, I do want to bring in the Lili, which is spelled L-Y-L-Y. So I still to this day don't know if I'm saying it correctly. Who <laughs> <Too> produced <laughs> that? Uh, I don't know where it originated, but I know Matt Turner works with it a lot. Um, and he has some and Nick Bottini has some as well as Elijah. Like a lot of people now have a little bit of that gene. But when I think of that gene, I think of Matt Turner first. I could be biased because I work with Matt Turner a lot with uh, getting animals from him. So that could be my own personal bias possibly. Um, but that ends up bringing out more contrast in the black. It kind of, if, if you have a normal blood python and you put the lilac to it, it brings out more black coloring. And for T negative, you know, the black turns to white. So in my eyes, that's going to be, you know, probably something that I want in my collection for the T negative because that brings them more blackout and then the T negative will wipe it out to white. So I thought that'd probably be a cool look that I, I want to work with. So. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Are there, are there a lot of new genes coming up in blood pythons? I mean, is there the same mentality of that there was in, in ball pythons when it was first getting all these mores? There is actually a lot. Um, if you go on the VPI page, I mean, there's so many stuff that they don't have pictured and they don't have articles on. And, you know, if you tour their facility, I'm sure you're going to find so many different secret projects that no one knows about. Um, but, you know, there's a, a gene that they call the super form is called uh, flower. And then the 
uh, implant dominant is called a pollen, which I think is funny. And that just changes up the, uh, the pattern down its back. And it, it kind of looks like a stripe with kind of flowers in the middle, which is why it's called flower. Um, there's wrought iron, which is a different coloration altogether. You have the different stripe lines. Um, so th th I mean, yes, there is a whole bunch that's going on. I don't think it necessarily will get to the level that the ball pythons are at, but there's definitely a lot of different morphs that you can work with if you're a morph person. Um, if you're not a morph person, then selectively breeding to make the best normal looking animal with whatever your best version, you know, might be, you know, there's plenty of, of work to do in that as well. How much is like the run of the mill new gene in blood pythons? How much does it usually cost? <laughs> uh, well, asking um, all the douchey questions for you. Uh, okay. So when I was looking at magpie back in the day when not really anyone else was producing it, I think that was 15,000. Um, there are rumors of pied uh, blood pythons out there. And I don't doubt that that'll be 20, 25,000. I, I can't really imagine it being more than that. Maybe top out at 30 for, for the pied, but yeah, so that, that would be probably my guess. But with the different morph combinations, if it's a, a totally new gene, you're going to get the price is going to go crazy high. If you're just doing a different morph combination, um, I would say between like five to 10,000 maybe. But that's like Which really high end stuff too. Yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking that I'm like that's that's like your high end market, and most of the time you're just selling to other breeders at that point, you know, <laughs> or someone yeah. who wants to to start breeding, and that's kind of their jump start into it to get something that has a lot more genes in it. Yeah, it's a trade or a white whale type of exactly, situation. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So I know, and I know that you had uh, at least one world's first that you you hatched out, right? Um, I that did. You had yep. At the show in Nola. Yes, uh, that is the T negative 007. Um, people tried for it, and I just was the lucky one that they came out of the eggs first for. So um, I had, you know, a, a really good clutch. I had a mold issue last year, so it took out half of the eggs. And thank goodness I got three of them that popped out. So I kept oh, wow. two of them and ended up uh, selling one. Technically, I am only keeping one, and one's always for sale. But no one's taken the bait on that yet, <laughs> and I don't mind if I get stuck with them. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those where you want to, you're, you're going to stick to your price. And yep. if someone buys them, they buy them. If not, then whatever. Yep. Yep. And it, it's, they're chill snakes. So it's not like they're not hurting me at all. Like they're not one of those, you're like, man, I really don't want to open this tub and have to deal with this snake. You know, they're really, really chill animals. So, you know, I'm happy with them. And, and I'm ex, it, it, it's, I started this idea of breeding, started uh, with Terrell, my partner, back six years ago. And the fact that I was able to do like a world's first in blood pythons to me was, you know, that was a, a really big benchmark for me and a, a really, a really big accomplishment for me that I'm really stoked about. Um, and it's kind of like, okay, well, what's going to be the next thing now? You know, you hit that big mark and then what's next? So, and I, I haven't decided yet what is next. <laughs> so, but yeah, but those animals are super cool and they've probably had about three sheds now. And you're starting to see some of the orange color come out, which maybe will turn red. I really don't know what they're going to look like. I mean, that's that's the exciting part, right? Mm -hmm. Is having snakes that you've only produced and then you don't know what they're going to look like. Yep. Yep. And, and each shed, they have the same they have the same head of their dad. 
uh, or of regular T negatives that have, you know, the white blaze and the kind of pink speckling on top, but the neck pattern on the golden eyes, it becomes very pink and kind of speckled. And the other 007 that I have that's normal coloration has black speckles all down her neck. So I'm like, okay, is that going to be white speckles in the T negative version or is that going to change some other color? So I'm, I'm really not sure exactly what's going to happen with those. So, so that is really cool. Every shed, when they go into shed, I get really excited. I'm like, okay, in two or three weeks, we get to see what happens next. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm I'm guessing that you're probably thinking of the next step too in that project. Um, is, yeah. is that something that you talk about? Or is that something that you keep under wraps? Like what I'm going to do next? Yeah, like what your next step is. So for that, I have like two sides of, of the projects that I'm doing. I have like the morph combinations where I want to make everything T negative. So, so that's part of that. So now I would just want to use those genes that are in that snake and put it into something else to kind of, this is going to be kind of ball python mentality, which judge me all you want on that one, but bringing in more of the genes and making those different pattern combinations and then making it a visual T negative. So that's like the side of that. That's the morph side of me. You know, when I got into snakes, I got into them because of the morphs and the colors and the patterns. So that's, you know, really my drive. And then I have the other side is making sure that even if we get a het T negative animal, that animal is going to be stellar and red and beautiful and amazing. And you're going to want to spend, you know, big bucks on that animal, even though it's just a normal het, you know, that's, that's my goal. Not necessarily to charge people. I'm not talking about that, but just figuratively. Right. <laughs> so have that really quality, amazing animal um, and do that through selective breeding and selecting good babies and breeding stock and raising them up. And also I've, I've actually had to sell a lot of the animals that I had as babies because they're not turning out in coloration how I envision them. So if I don't think they're going to make my project better, there's really not a reason for them to, I, I shouldn't breed them if they're not going to bring, you know, me closer to my goals and bring the species, you know, up a level. I don't want to stay the same or bring them down in quality. I want to always make it better. So, so that's something, you know, if you're going to get into to breeding to think about that sometimes with blood pythons, they come out and their coloring doesn't fully come to their, you know, adult, beautiful, saturated coloring to like three or four years later, which is cool. The really cool thing about blood pythons, right? You get a ball python and it's beautiful as a baby and it kind of fades out. Well, it's opposite for blood pythons, especially T negative. You get this yellow noodle. And then as the years go by, you know, you get the reds that come out and the oranges that come out and it's a sausage, not a noodle. <laughs> okay. <fair>. A sausage <laughs> or a slug, right? Some people yeah. call them slugs. <laughs> so, but you know, if along, you, you're not going to know the full potential of the animal until three or four years later. So you could be feeding an animal that you may not ever use. And, and, you know, that's something to, to think about when you're picking what animals you, you want to grow up and have in your collection. And how do you manage the, like the amount of animals that you keep back then? And then the amount of like, are you still bringing in some new animals to maybe make up for some animals that you don't end up holding on to? Yeah, I want to make sure I actually am looking for another pair of T negatives uh, because I, on the business side of breeding, um, albinos are, you know, what sells that what's what keeps the light on. So if you're thinking, and that's something I learned um, at the carpet fest. So when I went to uh, Eugene's facility, they have a whole database that has uses like algorithms and all this kind of stuff, like 
way higher tech than what I have. <laughs> but through all that uh, data research that they have and, and analysis, they found that the albinos are what consistently sell more. So I'm like, all right, I need to make sure that every year I have visual albinos. So I'm going to get a pair of those, but I want to make sure that they have, you know, that good coloring still. And so I got to, you got to look at the parents to see if the parents have good coloring. And even if those parents have good coloring, you're not going to be, you, you know, it's not like a hundred percent deal that you're, the baby's going to have that coloring. It's a higher chance of course, but you know, you might not have that. So, but I'm looking for those to bring in, in that more into my collection. Um, there's a couple of genes that I'm looking at adding in, uh, but mostly it's kind of figuring out the combinations that I have and uh, seeing if I need to get more uh, normals in my collection that have that high red color. But with that, I'm not made of money. So this is a very slow <laughs> thing that is occurring. And I, I, I want to add like five to seven different snakes in my collection this year. But there's no way with the quality that I want that I'm going to be able to afford that. So <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> so it's generally in blood pythons across the board seems like it's direct quality equals price type of deal. Cause even I'll see things that are the same morph that don't even seem to be, you know, in the same ballpark price wise. Yeah. Yeah. And I put a kind of controversial post on Facebook, gosh, maybe like a month or two ago where I said, you know, if you're going to a breeder and they have a certain price, you're paying for all the work that they have put into the animal, the years of work that they've put into the animal. You're paying for the support that that breeder is going to give you. The blood python community is unbelievably supportive. And if you go to, um, a, you know, a known breeder, someone, a quality breeder, they're going to help you when you have issues. If your animal isn't eating, they're going to, you know, go through and troubleshoot with you and try to figure it out to, to make sure that animal is doing well in, in your care. So you're paying for that. That's part of the price tag as well. So if you go and you have someone who imports them or is flipping them or, or whatever, you might have a, an $80 normal blood python. But then if you go to Karen Norris, who is the blood cell who specializes in selectively breeding those super red normals, those are going to cost you in the thousands. You know, you, you're going to have a thousand dollar snake versus an $80 snake, but that adult is going to look completely different. You're going to have one that possibly is more brown. It might have started off dehydrated with a stuck shed. It might, so you never know what you're going to start out with. But then when you get the that, you know, $1,000 animal, you have the lineage. You know, she tracks all of her lineage and you have pictures of the parents. You have all of that. You have her support. You know, she's not going to either sell to anyone. Um, that's just kind of highlighting Kara herself. But yeah, so you not only do you have that quality that comes with the price, but you also have the backing of that breeder to give you all the support that you possibly need. Uh, Cause blood pythons have some quirks that people aren't, you know, that makes them nervous sometimes, you know, especially when where they don't poop sometimes for months that gets people really nervous. So it's good to have someone to call that knows their shit that can help you, you know, take you off the ledge and say, no, you're good. You're good. Or fix, you know, what the problem might be. And how do you manage that? Because even just the the short amount of time we were behind the table at the show, and stuff, <laughs> we need to walk through like a shit ton of people on what this thing is, how to keep it, all that stuff. So how do you kind of vet out uh, customers? Um, it, I mean, it's really hard to say exactly. If, if they give me some line that's just crazy out of the blue, you know, if they ask if it's a ball python, I'm not going to be selling them a high end one. <laughs> because most people that are going to want a high-end one kind of already know what they want. 
um, and kind of seek you out. Uh, but I want to make sure that they ask the right questions. And, and even if they don't necessarily know everything off the bat, they're asking, you know, what kind of if, if they tell me they're going to put in a 10 gallon tank, that's not good for babies. And so if they aren't willing to change that, then I wouldn't want to sell to them. Um, you know, it's, and if someone was rude and kind of an asshole, I wouldn't want them to be a client of mine, or, you know, like a customer. Cause then I have to deal with an asshole and someone who's rude all the time. So, you know, <laughs> I can choose who I want to sell to also. Um, so the, so I, I look really like on attitude and willingness to, to learn and be coached really is when it, when it comes down to it. I think that's really what I'm looking for in the ideal customer, I suppose. Yeah. I think it's weird that online, it seems like when someone gets in touch with me and they buy a snake from me, they're often, and if they're involved in like all the Facebook groups and stuff like that, I'm like, Oh, this person we're choosing to, he's choosing to buy from me or hers choosing to buy from me. And then therefore they're going to be in contact with me about anything that goes wrong. And that's like a relationship that you're starting with this random person in a, in a show. I feel like a lot of times I sell a snake and then I don't hear from the people again. Or maybe yeah, they messaged me like the Monday after about it didn't eat the first time it tried and then yep. they fall out of contact. But it seems like some of the people online, it's like, and then you become friends with them over a certain amount of time. And actually like building the relationships on platforms like Instagram or Facebook uh, really helps to, to, I guess, find those really good customers that you're going to keep in contact with. Referrals. I always hear back from referrals and get updates from you know, people say, oh, this person has what you want. If they buy from me, I get updates from them. But like you said, if it's from a show, even Morph Market, actually, um, I sold a bunch of animals this year on Morph Market and I really don't hear much from them. Um, but I always, you know, make sure that they have all my, my cell phone number, even my email, like how to contact me. So I am readily available for them. But, you know, I've had two of them, I think, that actually would continually ask questions and it was like their first corn snake. And so they had a million bazillion questions on, is this normal? Is this normal? What do I do? Welcome <laughs> to my life. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh man, this is what Joe goes through. This is crazy. <laughs> Especially because I think I'm working with people that that's not their first pet, but for you, that's probably their first pet a lot of times. So they're going to have so many questions. Yeah, but it's not really, uh, it comes from an innocent place where you want to learn. I feel mm -hmm. like, feel like people have issues with and I feel like this happens more in pythons with some people like talk at you because there's so much information out there that they think they know it all kind of a thing especially with like the morphs and stuff like that and it's kind of a I don't know I like it when it's a beginner just asking innocent questions it's kind of fun too because they get really excited like when it sheds and you get a picture and her brothers held it, you know, this is one specific person and she would send me pictures of her brother holding the corn snake for the first time. And I'm like, that's really, you know, it, it makes me feel really good as a, a breeder that knowing that my animal has gone into someone's hand, that one is going to take care of them correctly. And two truly enjoys that animal. So mm -hmm. it's, it's always exciting when you get, you know, customers that give you those updates and stuff. Oh, I get pictures of like a four-year-old like kissing a snake on the mouth. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I wouldn't have done that. But I mean, glad she's having fun. Yeah. <laughs> I sold a, a Sumatran short tail to someone. Like the dad wanted a blood python and the son just wanted a cool snake. So he wasn't, didn't care so much. 
but the dad really like liked that heavy body look and all that stuff. And all I had left in my babies were like bitey little jerks. And I was like, no, no, I don't think you really want this one. But I had an older Sumatran short tail that didn't really cut it. He wasn't dark enough for what I wanted for breeding, but he was a good temperament animal. Probably needed a little bit of work, but I get pictures all the time of them chilling on the couch together. He's like, yeah, he strikes at the dog, but the dog learned and moved. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> and just seeing like, I get pictures of, of them and, and knowing too, like I, I, I'm really proud of that. Um, I feel like it's like tooting my own horn, but I was able to like hand pick an animal to that person's situation to make sure that they are going to have a good um, experience with them. And, and the fact that that actually ha that happened and everything worked out really well is, you know, it's something that that is what I really like about the breeding side of things. There's a lot of crappy sides to it as well, but that's probably the, one of the most fulfilling parts. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of things to gain both from hatching out animals and as well as like, you know, selling animals to people and it's part of what we do as far as and most of our friends at this point are snake people and all that stuff. Yeah, so it, it yeah. infiltrates a lot further than that. What's amusing to me too, is so many snake people aren't people, people. And, and yet they're breeding and having to interact with all these people and it like forces them to like, they have to be somewhat of a people person. And so it's funny to me that people get into breeding, love the animals, but then hate selling. It's like, okay, well then maybe you really shouldn't breed necessarily because part of it is, you know, talking with the people and having that relationship and being able to sell, you know, there's other skills that you need if you're, unless you want to just keep all the babies and, you know, Hey, go ahead. But <laughs> I, don't I, th think I think that's the that's purpose. Where, that's where like real, real things happen in the world. Meaning like, I could produce a world's first whatever, whatever corn snake. But I mean, let's be honest, there'll be like five people who see it one day and be like, oh, that's cool. And then that's pretty much it. But like you have you have the chance to go to this reptile show. And even though it's like the AML corn snake that there's like 50 of them at this show, right? You're going to sell it to someone and you're going to give them a pet for the next like 20 years of their life. And it's usually a child who like, you know, I've had mm -hmm. the same corn snake since I was in grade school. So it's like that animal can literally like grow up with someone and change their whole perspective on whether it's like exotic animal keeping, yep. you know, corn snakes or snakes in general and stuff like that. I mean, that's so much bigger than creating another pretty snake to put in a plastic box. Yeah. And I mean, like that's cool too. And in our own little hobby, you know, they're, you know, there's always levels to it, right? So being able to to produce that that morph combination or the world's first or whatever, yes, that is a huge compliment or accomplishment. And yes, that's really great. And of course, like that really I get really stoked on all that kind of stuff. But you know, like you said, at the same time, I sold my little motley Amel corn snakes to someone and they loved them. And I kept some of them because I love them. You know, that was my first snake. And I got that back in high school. And, you know, she was with me for 17 years, almost 18 years. So like what you just described basically was my story that brought me into appreciating them so much more, you know, than, than I would ever imagine if I hadn't gotten that one. Yeah. And I think, and I'm sure you even have, you have certain animals probably from certain people that you like more just because of the person that you got them from. <laughs> like, like there, <laughs> there's, a, there's no reason for me to have a butter motley corn snake, but like Austin Warwick 
hatched out like his first clutch of corn snakes and he was like excited about it. So I'm like, yeah, I want a baby from that. <laughs> and like, yeah, and I'm going to keep it back just because it's awesome. And then I gave him an egg that he hatched out. That's and cool. Gonna keep back <laughs> that one. So it's like, uh, yeah, so there's there's certain snakes that I like just for the fact that maybe a friend gifted it to me or something like that. I have some that, um, and this is the golden eye that I have that's HET T negative. I got them from Matt Turner. And I was like that that awful customer that no one wants where my snake didn't eat and I would contact him every five days. Like it's not eating. It's still not eating. (laughs) And this is where, you know, I appreciate Matt so much. Uh, He's with Selective Origins uh, because he was so patient with me and that snake ended up, we got him going and it turns out he just really likes live food and I really can't do much about that. Uh, But once I figured that out, you know, all was gold and all was well. Um, And because of that interaction that I had with the breeder, with the person that he's, you know, one of my favorite snakes, because there was a struggle that we went through and and we got through, came on the other end. And now he's doing great. And he is the father of the the Teenage 007s, too. So, you know, he's a pivotal part of my collection as well. Yeah, yeah. So I guess situation uh, pulls into it, too. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. That snake that you first treated or gave exactly, yep, kind of yeah, the one that like you saved from death or however you want to call it, <laughs> you know, most people that Petco, they just <laughs> yeah, Petco. I rescued it from Petco, uh, yeah, uh, I did I do that before? I don't think I ever rescued an animal from Petco. I don't think so. No, I haven't. <laughs> no, I used to when I was I think it was in Texas. There was those guys. Or no, I think it was actually here at the Italian market. Someone has like the the like tub of all green turtles of like baby uh, red ear sliders and yep. stuff like that. I was like, well, that's depressing. That yep, yep. That's are the one the t- where are they the like, under four inches? Like they're the tiny itty bitties. Yeah, like the ones yeah. that you shouldn't sell to people. Yeah, that's illegal. And then they I just think. have them like in the sun outside oh. on like the side. Like of they're the stressing out. Yeah. So then I'm like, yeah. Oh. The the, the unhappy side of, you know, exotic animals, right? Yeah, but I mean, what the things that say like short tail pythons have gone through as far as they're still very highly imported. And Mm -hmm. honestly, I mean, they're used for the skin trade probably more so than anything else. Well, that's where the imports came from um, is the skin trade. And if the, the people that are out in you know indonesia borneo malaysia that area uh when they're collecting the animals if they see something that's different uh then they know they can make more money you know selling it to someone in the states and so that's how they made part of their money as well um and i think in i want to say in 2001 a paper came out where uh, for short tails and borneo specifically they did a study on how many they could take from the wild for the skin trade that wouldn't affect the the numbers in the wild. Now, mind you, that was almost 20 years ago. So I'm sure that's a lot different, but at least it, it, it makes me happy that there was research done to make sure that the wild populations weren't being tampered when it came to the skin trade and the, uh, the pet trade as well. So. But you know, that was a long how time good, ago. Uh, how well run Malaysian factories and sure, factories yeah. I'm sure are, and how, uh, yeah. how considerate they are of the environment. Yeah, who knows, right? <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, at least it's something to where you can see that animals that are being imported pretty often 
there's there's a good reason that we should be you know captive breeding them and getting them in captive populations and so we no longer have to import or do anything yes yes and i think we're mostly at a point for that here with the the short tails um i mean i i'm also in like indonesia groups for the blood pythons and short tails and the stuff that they're still finding in the wild today is is mind-blowing they're still finding just the coolest most unique animals so i know there's still you know other genes that are out there other morphs that are out there different lines of albino um I think there's like possibly three different lines of T positive or T negative albino and probably another two lines for T positive that, uh, gosh, in ball pythons, would it be like, there's two different in ball pythons that aren't compatible. I can't remember, but, uh, they're not compatible. So, so that's, you know, neat and there's more stuff coming in, but. So those are like, say albinos that look the same, but aren't compatible. Yeah, uh, there's some variation, so there's going to be some slight variation to them, uh, but they're still like it wipes out all the black color, just like you know T negative would. But when you put the the two different, if you put a, two heads together, you're probably not going to prove anything out at that point. So they're they're not compatible. And people, I mean, people though have tried to, I'm sure, breed whatever. Are there ones like that still? in there or currently in blood pythons as far as different strains because i know say in uh in boa constrictors there's you know sharp and yeah um they're working on proving that out still uh so there's i know tracy barker is working with one that's called an orange t negative is what she calls it um and it does have more of an orange coloring than it does the red and she does not think that that's compatible with like the strain of T positive that I have or the line of T positive. I keep calling it strain. I don't know why. I don't even know if that's right, but whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, but she's working on seeing if that's compatible or not. So there's, and we don't, we don't know at this point. So we might have all those different lines. Um, we're just still working out the kinks to figure out exactly how it works genetically. Yeah, that was call albino for all the other, for all the people who are like, oh, what the hell? He couldn't think of the other. <laughs> The other line of boas, what an idiot. When people when people speak boa and when they speak ball python, I'm like, I don't understand all of that language and I'm so sorry. Like I can't keep up with your conversation because I don't keep any boas whatsoever. I know basically nothing about them uh, besides they do live birth and they're cool looking and have a lot of patterns. <laughs> and then with ball pythons, when I was into ball pythons, the morphs were so much more basic and now they're exploded and a five morph animal is going to be called a like one word name. And I have no idea what that actually, you know, makes. So <laughs> I'm completely useless. Yeah. If you want a conversation with me with ball pythons or boas, <laughs> I just nod my head. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. I just always have to use it as the, the measuring stick for so many things I'm like, you know, like in ball pythons and blah, blah, blah. Well, a lot of the genes in in carpet pythons as well, um, you know, we have exanthic genes. We think there might be an exanthic in blood pythons. I'm sure there is somewhere. Um, But a lot of the different morphs and the different genes and colorations, they they all kind of cross, you know, lines and are, you have like the same, you have the spider gene in ball pythons and then you have the jaguar and carpet pythons, right? They kind of act the same way. Uh, It works like that in a lot of different species as well. So you know, if, if 
you kind of, like you saying, to relate to a different species. We're talking about this, but this is like this in this species. So it all kind of yeah, yeah, over. like yeah. There can be things that reduce melanin, reduce pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there can be a a tiger, um, a tiger carpet python, and a clown ball python. That's a bad example, but I mean, like, there's, <laughs> there's things that can look phenot- phenotypically pretty similar. And you have you have the piebalds, right? There's piebalds and rainbow boas and ball pythons and now blood pythons. Yeah, horses. <laughs> people aren't people like don't they have when you have like people that are like have the albino in them, but then still have coloring too. Would that be considered piebald? Would that be considered piebald? Have you seen? I don't know. I don't know enough about skin pigmentation. Yeah, I'm about to offend someone. If I know, right? Like, like, I'm going to shut my mouth right now. <laughs> like, feel this one, April. <laughs> oh, I'm going to shut that down. We'll stop right now. <laughs> yeah, there's probably names for these things. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> pied. I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, there's there's genes. I mean, and they're unlocking new ones every single day. And I think that's mm-hmm. fun that um it's part of the fun that I mean blood pythons are, even though I mean the barkers probably have been working them the people have been working with them probably since the nineties or so in decent probably numbers. Earlier, like eighties, yeah. So I mean it's not like they haven't been around. Yeah, they've been around for a really long time. Um, I think there's just the explosion with the ball python. So a lot of people put effort into that. Uh, and then there was only, you know, a select few people that were really working with the blood pythons. And uh, I think actually having more morphs in the blood pythons has helped their popularity because people that were heavily into ball pythons, even even like myself, my first interest was corn snakes and ball pythons. And then I did research and came across the blood pythons and saw kind of the similarities and just really that found that to be, you know, what I was more interested in. And even in the past, maybe four years, uh, the blood Python group on Facebook went from like a 1500 people to now like almost 10,000 people. Wow. So the, the, the popularity of the species is just absolutely exploded, which is really cool. Uh, but then you kind of get the bad, more bad apples than that too. So, you know, but, but overall it's a, a positive thing. Yeah, I think we all tend to have like the the hipster mentality. It's like, yeah, we liked that before it was cool. And now all the people are all into it. And you're like, eh, scram. Right. Yeah. Like, get out of here. <laughs> this is my thing. Yeah. With just my friends. And now everyone likes it. And I used to bitch that no one liked it. But now other <laughs> right. people like it. And now I don't like it. Yeah, I got what I wanted, and now I'm mad about that too. <laughs> yep, and that's uh, that's how the cycle goes. Yeah, that's the world that we live in. So, <laughs> has there been any? I mean, I'm sure a lot of blood python people. I mean, aren't really show focused. So, I mean, think about like ball python people, who I know plenty of people who have to rely on shows to make money and stuff like that. But have you seen anything going on in the blood python? um world to suggest anything different than than normal um i think more of us are getting to a point to where we have enough to have a table at a show um you know there's some some people aren't in a good location so like traveling that far with the animals like you're just not going to be able to do the shows um i found that a lot of the sales that i get are just from making relationships on social media Um, and, you know, kind of being more consistent with showing what you have and what your plans are, uh, being excited about your animals in general, and then people get excited with you. Um, 
you know, uh, with social media these days, you know, you have to kind of have that personality behind it too. So, you know, kind of like marketing one-on-one when people like you and your personality, they'll tend to buy more from you if you're going on like the business aspect of things. Um, But yeah, I, I really think that building the relationships through like Facebook groups and that kind of thing is really more where it's at for the, the blood pythons right now. Um, I'm sure in the next couple of years, you're going to see more and more at shows. Like I said, because we actually have enough variety and enough numbers to now, you know, have that table and, and have something really awesome to show and be excited about. Yeah. And I guess just the, the more success that everyone has, the more people are going to push them, the more people are going to see them. And then, I guess put that in combination with just the reptile hobby in general is kind mm-hmm. of blowing up. So. Yeah. I mean, what's great about the blood Python community. Um, I mean, you see people, I, I keep going back to the Facebook group because that really is where most of us have met each other, have talked with each other and how we like how we found each other to communicate and bounce ideas off of each other. Um, but there's maybe like a core, there's a core group of breeders that have, you know, they took me under their wing six years ago when I decided to do this. Uh, some people, oh, it's so funny too. It's a total sidetrack thing. But when I got into it, they still had um, the forums online. And I ended up like a couple years after I got into the hobby or got into blood pythons, went into the forum and I saw people talking shit about me from like two years ago. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, oh, that's real cool. Thanks, guys. Because <laughs> I was one of those people that, put in the money to buy the more expensive animals right off the bat. And, and so like, I, I see now like hindsight, I can see why, you know, they, they gave me the crap that they did at the time, but I guess I, I don't know. I earned my stripes and now here I am, <laughs> but they, they really took me under their wing and, and those, those core, the core breeders in that group, you know, we talk with each other about prices. We see what they're doing. You know, we try to really support each other and build each other up. And, and, you know, if, I know that I don't have something that this particular customer wants. I can point them in the direction. I'm not just going to try to get the sale off of this person. I want them to go to someone else that has exactly what they're looking for. So uh, I don't know with other communities if that's really, you know, as, as big, (laughs) you know, like I don't, I don't know if ball Python people, if they're just cutthroat, I don't know. I don't know if there's a small group that work together. I don't know, but with blood pythons, we really, really are out looking, we're looking out for the animal and the success of the breed. And, and it really seems like we all come together to, to make that happen and, and also kind of check other people um, and, and kind of help regulate the community in a sense. And I think that's really how we are. We have the, the tight niche community that we have um, is because of the people that really just absolutely love the animals, support the animals and will call people out when needed, obviously in a nice way, but you know, we, we kind of regulate in that way also. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like it's such a like community based thing, but it is as far as like, I, I always refer other people out to other breeders just because I don't know. I don't try to convince anyone to buy something that they don't want necessarily. Yeah. And I mean, exactly. The colubrids, it can be like, I want a kink snake. Well, I'm not going to try to get them to buy a different kink snake or whatever. You just pass it on to whoever. But Yeah. 
But I think yeah, and, I, I, and I think that there's other communities, you know, it's not just blood Python communities. There's communities for this particular Facebook group that may not be that particular species or, you know, we have friends just from doing podcasts and friends yeah. who yep. do podcasts and people who listen to podcasts. So there's like yep. a group of those people too. And it's really, I mean, it really comes down to like the relationship that you have with other people. Um, and then, you know, Make it, if, if I could give advice to anyone coming into the hobby, it's like start networking and making friends because for one, you're going to get better deals on animals you want, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's and like a hundred percent truth. It's totally true. <laughs> and, you know, if you, you know, if you decide to breed, if you make friends, people are going to be like, oh, well, this person has, I referred someone to you. I don't even know if you have the animal they were looking for, but I was like, he does colubrids. He might have this. Uh, so, you know, you get references and stuff, but just, I mean, like you said way earlier on in the episode, like most of my friends are reptile people at this point, you know, and, and this, it's, this is almost like ride or die kind of friends too. Like, if I have something going on at work that I need to vent about, the reptile people are the people that seem to care about what's going on with me. Um, and that's maybe just because we, you know, have that very weird thing of our weird hobby in common that, you know, pulls us all together. But if I give anyone any advice from from the get-go is make friends. Like, start making friends immediately. Start yesterday. <laughs> and And listen, I'm not extroverted in any way. Me either. Um, <laughs> so it's like, and the fact that we can just talk to people with the common, it has to do with the common interest more so than our personalities or anything. Cause most of us, even, even the most um, like people person of us all is still pretty low. As far I'm as like, like Carly. That's what I first thought of. I was like, Carly's the most people person I know. <laughs> Maybe one of the only true extroverts doing yeah it. right and i'm in the conversations too they're going to start with the snakes and then you know you might ask well what got you started and then you're going to talk about you know your family or growing up and then you just branch off on different things so obviously the conversation is going to be with the thing we're most comfortable with right and that's going to be the reptiles but then you just expand and and realize you have a heck of a lot more in common with people than than you thought and that's where it all where it all starts uh-huh. <laughs> so what was really like, because I know going to events, I mean, has at least been huge to me. What were some of the, the first ones that you went to? Um, so Terrell and I back in the day started our own carpet, carpet fest um, in California, and, and which was the southern Southwest Carpet Fest, but now it's like gone north a little bit. So I don't know what the heck they're calling it these days. Um, but that event was one where I kind of opened my eyes to the different people that were around the area. Uh, for me. And then um, going to, after that, the most significant thing was going to the Tinley show because I lived in California at the time. So all these people that are into blood pythons, not all of them, but a majority at the time, were all on the East Coast. So going to Tinley, I was able to meet these people that I saw online all the time in person. And that's kind of where it's kind of like real life and internet life meets. (laughs) And so that was a really big deal for me. And then um, because Terrell worked so heavily in carpet pythons, I knew a lot of carpet python people. So when I went to uh, Eric's for Carpet Fest, I think it was two years ago, I think. Um, that was another, you know, big one for me as well, because you get to meet these people in person. And it's it's less about the animals when it comes to those big events and, and more about the the people and the relationships that you have with the people. Keep going back to that. But I mean, it's really a huge part of 
you know, why part of the reason, you know, I keep going with all this is, you know, not only are all my friends in it, but I have amazing, you know, relationships and friendships and support from all these people. And uh, yeah, I'm going to stop rambling about relationships. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I I think that's why I think that's why so many people, I mean, give up after a little while. Uh, it's because they don't have those people to really pick them up, or maybe you don't feel into it at the very moment, but then you talk to someone and they're excited, and then you get excited. And I think it's really a pivotal, a pivotal part of keeping this all going because just keeping your snakes in a room can get pretty depressing when shit goes bad, or you know. Yes. Yeah. Because um, even I think if if I didn't start designer exotics with Terrell, I think I probably would have fizzled out way before, but. When I had Milo, he was kind of having a high. And then, like, we, we'd do this, like, switch thing. <laughs> so he keeps it going. He gets excited about something when I might be down here. But because he's excited, that kind of brings me up a little bit more and kind of playing off of each other in that way. So, yeah, I totally, totally see that. If you're having a hard time with something and then someone comes that's super stoked about whatever animal they just got or whatever it might be, you know, that really does help because – you know, when I was going through that virus, there was times where I just didn't even want to go look at the collection. I didn't want to see who else was going to be sick next. And it was just depressing. And uh, I know other people have gone through that too. And you keep trucking along with it, but it's hard. It's it's really hard to know that all the work you put in and the care that you have with the animals is kind of, you know, being taken away from you. And, and it really is depressing and sad. So having that, those other people around you to kind of, to be there and support you and help you troubleshoot things, you know, is, is really key. So I, I totally see why someone doesn't have that, that they're just going to come and go real quick. Yeah. Yeah. And if anyone ever wants to reach out about something like that, I mean, there's so many people out there and uh, if you ever have problems with things, I mean, there's so mm-hmm. many people out there willing to help. Yep. Um, and I may suggest, uh, maybe finding that person. And if you're going to reach out to them, don't do it as a public post on a Facebook group. (laughs) I would suggest (laughs) maybe doing that as a private message to the person specifically that can help you. Uh, Just because if you have a problem like that, some people might come at you negatively instead of being constructive and actually helping you through the problem. Uh, And that's, you know, everyone can say whatever they want on social media. That's kind of the bad side of it. But, you know, you want to have that constructive help rather than, you know, people being like, well, you're stupid for even doing that. It's like, well, I don't want to ask for help if you're just going to tell me that I'm dumb. So maybe do it and find, do private messages on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. So April, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, um, where can they find you? Yeah. So I'm mostly on Facebook and Instagram under designer exotics. Uh, You also can find me on YouTube. Uh, I have a channel that I'm not as consistent as I need to be on it, but I do have a lot of information on blood pythons there. Uh, And that is designer exotics as well. And then if you want to email either of us, Terrell or myself, you can do that at designerexotics at gmail.com. Awesome. As for me, Port City Pythons, all that good stuff. Port City Pet, Port City Pet on Instagram, (laughs) Port City Pythons podcast on YouTube, all that stuff. Um, April, do you have, you have eggs now? So do you have anything, uh, or eggs coming soon? I have eggs coming soon on my Borneos. So they're striped Borneos. So hopefully hoping for that. I'm hoping for some T negative golden eyes this year, as well as some really dark Sumatrans. So let's keep our fingers crossed that everything went well. <laughs> Damn. So keep, keep an eye out on her page as well as, uh, yeah, 
Hit me up, Port City Pat, Port City Pat. How do we end these things? Thank you guys so much for listening. I will catch you guys later.